You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to our podcast live from the ABA section of Antitrust Law Spring Meeting 2018. This is Lindsay Champlin, and I'm the host for today's episode, which is being recorded on location at the ABA section of Antitrust Law Spring Meeting 2018 in Washington, D.C. Joining me now, I have Paul Render, a partner at Jones Day, and John Snyder, a partner at Alston & Bird. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you, Lindsay. Before we get started, please tell us a bit about yourselves. Can you tell me a little bit more about where you work and what you do? Let's start with Paula. Thank you. I am a partner at Jones Day, and I focus on antitrust litigation, and I really only do antitrust litigation. Sometimes I'll get involved in some big class actions, but mostly antitrust. I was never really planning to be an antitrust lawyer, but I was in sales and product management with a big corporation before I became a lawyer. And so after a few years of general litigation, it just seemed like a natural thing for me to specialize in, in antitrust law related to my business background. And it's just been a lot of fun and everyone should think about becoming an antitrust lawyer. Thanks, Paula. What about you, John? Thanks, and thanks for having me. So I'm a partner at Alston & Bird here in the Washington, D.C. office, and I've been there for about two and a half years. And I came to Alston after about 14 years serving at the Justice Department in the Antitrust Division. Prior to that, I did a, a little bit of general commercial litigation. And like Paula, I felt the need to specialize and find something more interesting to become an expert in. And that's what actually took me to the Justice Department to do antitrust. And so my practice focus is really on merger clearance uh, before the antitrust division and the FTC, and also uh, antitrust litigation and counseling. Well, thank you both for joining us. We're here to discuss recent developments in antitrust merger law and what it's like to practice in this area. So the first question is, what is going on in antitrust law right now with respect to mergers and acquisitions? Any major developments or trends that you're seeing? So I'll start on that. So we're about a year into the Trump administration, and I think what we're seeing is uh, more of the same. There's a general, I think, consensus. Merger review is one of those areas of antitrust uh, where a lot of the rules of the road are fairly well established, particularly with respect to horizontal mergers. So if we look back over the last year, we've seen a continued trend in, in terms of there's been a good amount of M&A going on. And I would say that the review process uh, at the agencies looks very similar to what it looked like under the prior administration. I would certainly agree with that. I think that the merger review process is one that operates almost independently of the administration to a large extent. I think deal flow over the you know last year or so has been somewhat lower than usual. And as a result, there's been less of the merger clearance work. When there is a merger clearance project, it proceeds pretty normally, but we're seeing deal flow pick up a little now. And so I think that that reflects perhaps that businesses are becoming a little bit more confident about taking strategic actions and, and making acquisitions under the new administration. Sometimes just uncertainty can slow deal flow down, and I think there was some of that this past year. But on the, the merger clearance side, I think that's really what we're seeing. And do you expect deal flow to continue to rise this coming year? Any forecast on that? Well, I think, you know, if there's any kind of an economic dip or there's any reason for uncertainty, that could certainly slow deal flow down again. And I don't think any of us could rule that out in the current environment, but hopefully everything's just going to keep going gangbusters. So I don't know about what Paula's practice focuses on. My practice, a lot of my other uh, merger work that I do, 
would be mid-cap transactions up to a billion dollars or more is what I would think of as the sweet spot. And we've seen a, a good amount of those types of transactions over the last few years. Do a lot of work in the healthcare space, and we've seen a lot of hospital deals, which typically do get a careful look from the FTC. I, mean, I think there are certain areas, certain um, product areas where the risks are significantly enhanced. And so I think of healthcare and agriculture as two areas where the agencies take a real careful look at just about any transaction that comes across. John, you mentioned that the review process looks similar across administrations. What effect, if any, has the fact that we don't have a full FTC panel of commissioners had on antitrust review recently? Paula mentioned that merger review operates to some extent, you know, without a lot of adult supervision uh, from the political appointees. There are really, you know, highly qualified expert staff attorneys that don't change over with the various administrations. And I think they've been going about their roles, you know, without much of a change. I think it was really interesting to watch the FTC operate with only two commissioners last year because, and I don't claim to be an expert in the rules under which they operate, but they limit, for example, two commissioners getting together and having a discussion under certain circumstances. Uh, and when there are only two commissioners, that can make things complicated. They seem to work very well together. Chairwoman Olhausen and uh, Commissioner McSweeney seem to work very well together. I think, you know, there was one deal, uh, Walgreens Rite Aid, where I think perhaps there was a split there uh, between the commissioners, and I think you know, trying to read between the lines, it looked like you know, the lack of a full slate of commissioners may have had some impact on the timing and perhaps even the outcome there. But I think generally, you know, things continue to hum along fairly well at the commission. I think what we'll have now, and I think we're going to see a full slate very soon, I think the uh, fifth uh, commissioner uh, was having her hearing today before the Senate panel. Um, so we should fairly quickly get a, a full slate. I think policy direction is you know, something that we'll look forward to seeing what direction the new chairman and the new slate take us. And that's something to watch. I agree with everything that John just said. I think that's really a good summary. I think on the DOJ side, and you know, I think there are some people who are new to antitrust who may be listening to this. So we talk about the front office, meaning the leadership of the, the Department of Justice Antitrust Division. I think the front office was very understaffed for a very long time. And I don't think it hurt the agency's productivity. They kept reviewing mergers and they kept things moving, but I think it may have been hard on the people internally. I think they needed those positions filled they needed the extra hands, they needed the leadership. And so I think as the those positions got staffed, things got better for the, the folks at DOJ. But they did an impressive job with merger clearance, even when they were quite understaffed. And I think Andrew Finch, who is the principal deputy at the antitrust division, so the number two uh, political appointee under Assistant Attorney General Del Rahim, he was in acting capacity for a good portion of the year. And he's an incredibly accomplished antitrust lawyer, long record of private practice and previous service at the division. And I think that allowed him to take on a, a huge role, uh, really, when, before some of the other appointees arrived and um, keep things running smoothly. You mentioned a policy shift when the full FTC commission panel comes, something to watch for. Has there been a noticeable policy shift since Del Rahim started in his role that you've noticed? 
I don't think there's been much of a policy shift at DOJ, and I wouldn't really expect there to be. I think sometimes we see that policy shift more at the FTC, depending on who gets appointed there. We certainly saw a much more aggressive stance, for example, in certain pharmaceutical cases under you know previous administrations. So I'll let you address that, John, because I, I think you've got more familiarity with the FTC than I do. So before I turn to the FTC, you know, I, I would sort of say that things vary by degree. And I think, you know, the obvious point, this is something I think we'll we'll probably want to talk a little bit about, is the very strong hostility or lack of interest in pursuing remedies other than divestiture remedies in merger transactions that has been articulated by the Assistant Attorney General. And now, uh, I guess recently, also by the uh, Director of Enforcement at the FTC, Acting Director of Enforcement. Um, So I think that is... question of degree, this shift traditionally, for those who are new to antitrust, traditionally, particularly mergers between competitors are resolved through divestiture of assets or business units uh, to install a new competitor or strengthen an existing competitor. But when you have a merger of a supplier and a purchaser, so in a vertical relationship, that can be uh, more challenging. And we've seen both agencies now take a a stronger position than in the past, uh, saying they're not interested, except in exceptional circumstances, in imposing sort of uh, conduct remedies, limiting the future behavior of uh, merging parties, uh, as opposed to a divestiture. And I do think that is a shift. I think it's one of degree, because I think it can be overstated. I think prior administrations always preferred to do a divestiture where possible, but I'd be interested to hear Paul's thoughts on that. I think it's a very good point. I think the DOJ has been very reluctant to enter into consent decrees and and behavioral remedies, and I think that's because the enforcement is just so difficult. And we've seen some really difficult uh, monitoring situations, for example, with Apple and and some of the other uh, consent decrees that involve behavioral remedies. So, but I certainly agree that they have made it clear that they are very hostile toward anything other than divestiture remedies. It's probably overstating it to say that, you know, many of the industries in the United States have reached a sort of a level of concentration that mega mergers are going to be difficult going forward, but. That may be some factor, a factor in some industries where it's just reached a level of concentration that the major competitors aren't looking at deals of buy, buying competitors, given the consistency and approach. But for whatever reason, I think we've seen you know a trend towards uh, a lot of vertical deals in the last uh, year, uh, whether it's um, you know Amazon, Whole Foods, AT and T, Time Warner, Essilor, Luxottica. You know these are all vertical transactions. And uh, it'll be interesting to see if there's um, an unwillingness to pursue behavioral or conduct fixes, whether that's going to mean the division's going to find themselves challenging more of these deals straight out, or whether more of the deals will just be cleared without any limitation or restriction. Would we ever see one of the agencies trying to push for a divestiture in a vertical deal? Is that possible? It's absolutely possible. It just, I think it can be more complicated. And the question is how much of a divestiture is sufficient under the, and Paula may want to add to this, but under the horizontal guidelines, you know, we think about factors like concentration and it's often a question of degree where there's some disagreement, but it's generally both the parties and the agencies have an idea of what it would 
require to establish a new competitor uh, or preserve competition? I think that's a harder question when you're talking about two companies that aren't currently competing. I agree with that. The question becomes, uh, will the vertical relationship or the, the vertical merger, will that create too much concentration in one or the other of the competitive playing fields that the two companies are in? And so the question would be, is there a divestiture that would actually remedy that concentration? And sometimes that can be very difficult. DOJ could have a hard time or FTC could have a hard time saying, we'll divest these assets when they're just talking about uh, we need two competitors instead of one. So I, I think, as John said, it's complicated. It can be done, but it's complicated. Speaking about agency challenges in court, uh, in 2017, the FTC and DOJ won all cases that were decided that year. Um, Any thoughts on why that's the case, if that's a point that's aimed to continue? Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about that. I have been involved in trying some of the big merger litigation cases over the last few years. It's not just last year in which the government won every case. The government almost always wins the cases. There are just a handful of cases like the Steris case um, and, a, and a few others in which the defendants have won. I think a defendant goes into a merger litigation facing a real uphill battle because in the judge's mind, and these are always bench trials, they're not jury trials, but in the judge's mind, the Department of Justice is just looking at what's good for consumers, what's good for the economy, doesn't really have a dog in the fight in terms of whether this particular merger should go forward or not, except for a concern for consumers. And so they walk into the courtroom with this kind of mantle of credibility that makes the judge think the government has the burden of proof in these cases. But in reality, we feel like the defendants have the burden of proof because the defendants have to prove to the judge that the department has it wrong. They're just wrong. And so I think that's a very difficult uphill battle. The other aspect of these cases that makes defendants have a pretty tough road to hoe is that the government is often like their offices were in the same building as the judge. They ride perhaps on the same elevators unless the judges are using special judge elevators. And so these are the folks that they see in the cafeteria every day. There's just a, a certain feeling of, well, really defendants? Like, are you really telling me these people who have all these economists and, and they are in my building and they are, they're just sort of like my coworkers in a way, are you really telling me they're wrong? So I think that there's just a big, big mountain for the defendants. And then I'll just add one more thing to this. These cases often get decided on the defendants' internal documents. And internal documents can say all kinds of things, particularly in the world of email. People dash off comments without thinking about them. They use words without having any idea what significance those words are going to take on in a legal battle later. And so the internal documents really often are where these litigation cases founder because the judge says, well, you know, your own document said that this was going to help you kill the competition. And that's exactly what we're trying to prevent. And your economists can say all day long, no, they're wrong. That's what they wanted. That's what they hoped. They are marketers. They're not economists. I've looked at this. This is not going to kill competition. And I think sometimes that can fall on deaf ears. So I think that the internal documents are really where uh, a defendant has to start when they say to themselves, do I want to go through a merger litigation? Paula makes a great point. And I think, you know, it highlights the importance of good antitrust counseling 
and education on careful document creation so that people are precise and accurate in the way they uh, describe their business activities and don't get casual uh, and loose with their language. Uh, because I, I do agree, you know, I would say there's really two things that matter in merger litigation, and that would be customer concerns and documents. And I think the rest of it is kind of a wash. The other point I would add that I think, or two other points as to why the government tends to win is, first of all, you know, the case law is pretty pro-government in terms of uh, the structural presumption that's now widely recognized in courts around the country that's embedded in the horizontal merger guidelines that the agencies themselves have written. And so, you know, while the burden is ultimately on the government, for deals that do create significant concentration, courts tend to go through that standard approach of let's look at uh, concentration. Um, does this create a presumption of anti-competitive harm? And then we'll look at the plus factors or the minus factors. So I think that the DOJ tends to bring cases where they're going to get that structural presumption and getting that is critical. So I think that's uh, the first thing. And I think the second thing is now that we have the HSR Act since 1978 and companies need to wait before merging, when the DOJ comes in or the FTC comes in and says, you need to block this merger, Your Honor, they're basically saying, keep the status quo. Let's keep things the way they are. And the parties are saying, no, we think, you know, this change, which you are having forward-looking analysis, you know, isn't going to be a big risk to competition. And I think, you know, preserving the status quo is always a, an easier place to be. Doesn't sound like that's likely to change in the future then, unless we get the perfect case to make some uh, defense-friendly law. As a final question, do you have any advice for law students or young lawyers who are interested in learning more about antitrust merger work? Sure. I think a very broad experience in your first couple of years of practice is your absolute best preparation for anything else you're going to do if you have that opportunity. So if you join a firm and you join an antitrust practice, but you have the opportunities to try some general litigation, work on some deals, I think broad preparation really makes you more effective later when you specialize. But as a young lawyer, if what you want is antitrust and you know that's what you want, you need to go to a firm that does a lot of antitrust work. Lots of firms talk about doing antitrust work because they do some antitrust litigation here and there. But I think if you want to be an antitrust lawyer, particularly in Washington, you've got lots and lots of firms to choose from where antitrust is part of their bread and butter and they're doing deals and merger clearance every day. And I, I think that that's the kind of firm you want to look for. I agree with that. I would also say I think two things I'd put in a plug for government service. You know, I think that was, you know, a huge advantage to me to understand from the inside, uh, both as a staff attorney and then working in the front office, um, how decisions are made, what types of evidence are critical, even down to the point of, you know, understanding who on a particular investigation team is likely to be viewing the transaction skeptically uh, versus uh, who may be more open to the party's arguments so that you can address the right arguments to the right people. So I think government service is a huge advantage, I say at least. There's certainly lots of great antitrust successful lawyers that don't do government service, but I think it's a great way to learn. And the other thing is I think you have to really love it and want to do it and not and particularly merger work, that type of thing. At some point, and I think general experience is good, but at some point you really need to immerse yourself in it, understand the economics behind antitrust. Well, it may not carry the day in litigation because you have one on each side. 
understanding the economic arguments and principles, working closely with economists and really digging into the facts uh, at a deep level is critical to um, convincing either the agencies to clear a merger or ultimately a court. Well, it looks like we've reached the end of our program. I want to thank both John and Paula for joining us today. If our listeners have questions or wish to follow up with you, how can they reach you? People can email me at my Jones Day account, which is P-R-E-N-D-E-R at Jones Day, all one word, J-O-N-E-S-D-A-Y dot com. And email is probably the best way to reach me, too. It's uh, John, J-O-H-N dot Snyder, S-N-Y-D-E-R at Alston dot com. Great. This concludes another podcast from the ABA section of Antitrust Law Spring Meeting 2018. If you like what you heard, please find us and rate us in Apple Podcasts. I'm Lindsay Champlin. Until next time, thank you for listening. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.